0: i Chapter 14. If you want to turn in your Bibles, well, I'll encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Zechariah 14 verses 16 uh, to 21. is what we're going to read. Although I'm only going to cover 16 to 19 today. Uh, next week uh, we'll look at verses 20 and 21. And there may be one more message, which is an overview of the book to see where we've been and what the book is telling us over- overall. Um, just to particularly, and ultimately it is to prepare us for the Lord's second coming. It was to prepare the people of Zechariah's day uh, to be encouraged despite many discouragements and uh, it was to prepare them that one day the Lord will fulfill all of his covenant promises. So we're going to start from Zechariah chapter 14. Verse 16 to uh, 21. Then it will come about that day that, uh, that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. If the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be that plague which, with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. In that day, there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. And all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them. And there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. In that day, there are two prominent themes in this closing uh, section, and I noticed as as, uh, Scott was leading, he touched on particularly the aspect of worship. When Jesus returns to reign in righteousness from Jerusalem, two prominent thoughts will take our focus. The first is worship. The second is holiness. They belong together. You see, worship is about his worship, But true worship comes from the heart. It's a heart that has been touched by the holiness of God and as a result is being made holy uh, itself. Jesus in his day says of the worship of the uh, religious leaders of his time, in Matthew 15:8 and 9, This people honours me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men or rules taught by men. A.W. To- there are a lot of quotes that you can get about worship and uh, many of them make you really th- thinking through the process. A.W. Tozer said that worship is never about the person worshipping. You know, when we th- talk about worship often we think it's about what music I like and, and that kind of thing, what kind of style of service makes me feel comfortable. Or... But it's not about me. It's about the one that we're worshipping. The person we are worshipping. And it is with a heart that recognizes his worthiness that we can truly worship. Warren Wearsby says, Worship is the believer's response of all that they are mind, emotions, will, body to what God is and says and does. And you see, true worship includes the glory and the honor that are due to God, the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit. William Temple, in an earlier time, put it this way, Worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of heart to his love, the surrender of will to his purpose, and all of this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable, and therefore the chief remedy for that self-centeredness, which is our original sin and the source of all actual sin. You go over to the book of Revelation as, as, uh, as we begin to see the things that are accompanying uh, the, the time of the great tribulation in Revelation 5 and the scene is in heaven and, and, and the angels declare and creation declare this, Revelation five eleven to 13, then I looked. And I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriad of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing And then it says in verse 13, And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea, and all things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honour and glory and dominion for ever and ever. Now as we come into chapter 14, we find that the... Second coming of the Lord Jesus or of the Messiah is the dominant theme. His return, okay. Here we his return will be sudden, unexpected, visible, personal, powerful, glorious, and triumphant. And when he steps on the Mount of Olives, verse four tells us it will split apart altering the topography of Jerusalem and the surrounding area in preparation for the kingdom. Peace will settle on the earth as Jesus the Messiah establishes his kingdom, reign and rule. Zechariah's concluding section emphasises that both holiness and worship will characterise and permeate Christ's kingdom on earth. In that time, the nation of Israel will be delivered from its enemies, and judgment will come upon those who have opposed the nation. And the nation of Israel will finally be able to fulfill its holy to the Lord mandate. We read in... Where have we gone? Ah, going the wrong way. That's why... In Deuteronomy 7:6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You see, there is a time coming when Messiah will be the king over all the earth, as chapter as verse 9 tells us. And in that time there will be no curse on Israel, and the people will live in security, says verse 10. On the other hand, the Messiah's rule will begin with an intense time of judgment, plague and death against those who have warred against Jerusalem as we looked at last week. You see, Zechariah was speaking to a people who were enduring hardships. They were being harassed by neighbours. They were discouraged over their small numbers and seemingly inadequate temple and their worship was apathetic. But God had said... I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. And he promised to restore their land, their city, and their temple. Now Stephen Cole notes, the return of Christ as king will mean the establishing of his righteous kingdom over all the earth. Let's face it, the righteousness or holiness uh, righteousness or holiness doesn't get good press in our day. And sometimes even to the Lord's people, it may not sound too exciting or fun. But in that day, the nations are going to come up to Jerusalem. We're going to look at this in verses 16 to 9 up to Jerusalem. And next time we'll be looking at the second part in which things are declared as being holy to the Lord. And the exclusion of that which is unholy. But it begins, really, with the worship of the nations, verse 16. Then it will come about that any who are left of the nations that went against to, uh, Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booth. Yes, we saw last time that he would bring a plague and judgments upon the nations, But just as there will be a remnant of the Jews that survived the judgments of the great tribulation, so there will be a remnant of the Gentiles uh, from these nations. David Levy asks, who are these Gentiles required to attend the Feast of Tabernacles? And he says they are the sheep that will be placed at Christ's right hand. After his return, Christ will judge the nations that survived the great tribulation to determine who from among the, among the Gentiles will enter the kingdom uh, in Matthew 25, 31 to 46. This judgment of the nations, which is not to be confused with the judgment seat of Christ or the great white throne judgment, is mentioned in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew 25, 31 to 33, it says, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, Then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. This judgment takes place in the valley of Jehoshaphat between the eastern wall of the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives. We read in Joel 3, verse 2, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and they have divided up my land. The the concluding battle is, is, is picturing this whole issue of judgment and in verse 12 of chapter 3, it says, Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Now, last week, Adrian talked about how the lion roars, and we sang the song that goes with that. In Joel 3.16, it says, The Lord roars from Zion. And he offers his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. The sheep in this judgment are redeemed Gentiles who will be placed at Christ's right hand, denoting a place of honor and blessing. They will inherit the kingdom prepared for them from the foundation of the world. An evidence of their regenerated nature will be their kind treatment of the Lord's brethren, the Jewish people, during the Great Tribulation. Unlike the sheep, the goats are cursed and condemned to everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You find in Matthew 25:41 because of their hostility toward and physical mistreatment of Jewish people during the tribulation, these unsaved Gentiles will be executed following his judgment. And you find that in Matthew 25, 41 to 46. The end result is that no unrighteous person will enter the kingdom. Charles Feinberg makes an interesting point, noting that when the Lord's judgments are in the earth... The nations learn righteousness. For the remnant of the nations, God has promised a rich feast. We find in Isaiah 26, 9. At night, my soul longs for you. Indeed, my spirit within me seeks you diligently. For when the earth experiences your judgments, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. So very different to today. In Isaiah 25, verse 6, has already said, The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all the peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. You see, after Jerusalem becomes secure, and Messiah's worldwide reign has been established, The survivors from all the nations, any who are left of all the nations, will worship annually in Jerusalem, or at least the very least representatives. I did wonder about that during the week. I thought, man, if all the population of the world came up to Jerusalem, it's going to be a very crowded thing. But David Levy suggests that perhaps it's the representatives of each of the nations. and We can sort that and we'll understand that perhaps more. And it says they will go up from year to year to worship the king. Now I want you to get this. This is is an incredible contrast to the Gentiles who came against Jerusalem for destruction that the same nations are now coming for worship. It's a major spiritual and geopolitical transformation from terror and false worship of the Antichrist in the last half of the Great Tribulation to celebration and true worship of the Christ who alone deserves men's worship. The phrase, will go up, is used over 800 times in the Old Testament and it primarily means to ascend. That is both physical, Jerusalem, we've read before, will be lifted up, but it is also particularly spiritual. They will ascend to worship at his holy place. We were told of this back in Zechariah chapter 8 in the night visions. Thus says the Lord of hosts, it will yet be that peoples will come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one will go to another saying, let us go at once to entreat the favour of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will also go. So many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favour of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days ten men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Wow. What a picture. John MacArthur notes that Israel, restored in millennial glory, will be the means of blessing to all the world, as we pointed out last time in Genesis 12, the promise to Abraham that through his descendants through the people of Israel, God would make it bless all the nations of the world. Gentiles from around the world will make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to entreat the Lord. This signifies salvation of people from all over the world during the kingdom, fulfilling Psalm 122. The 10 to 1 ratio represents a vast number of Gentiles who will come. The Messiah in the midst of millennial Israel will be the attraction of the world. From being the the thorn in the flesh of the world, it now becomes the centre of world focus for a positive positive reason. As David Guzik notes, instead of coming to Jerusalem for battle, now the nations come uh, to honour God and to remember his faithfulness and to Israel in the wilderness by keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. We read in Isaiah 2.2, Now it will come about in the last days. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of mountains and will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. It's time of, Jewish, of, of joyous celebration. Now, I've mentioned to you before and, and we've looked at it in some other series, but the feasts of Israel celebrated throughout the year the seven feasts are a four type a picture of the second coming of the coming of the lord jesus both in his first and his second coming and the last of those feasts in the year is the feast of passover the other feasts passover and pentecost have been fulfilled But the Feast of Tabernacles, which mark the time of thanksgiving for the final harvest, finds its fulfillment during the millennial kingdom of the Messiah. As Mark Robinson says, the Feast of Tabernacles speaks prophetically of the final ingathering of Israel, as well as the nations of the world. God in the person of Messiah Jesus will dwell with the people in Jerusalem. The Feast of Tabernacles is known uh, in Hebrew as Sukkot. After hearing Ezra, the priest, read the instructions about how to celebrate Sukkot after they had returned from Babylon, the people of Israel joyfully went to fulfill the command to go and build booths. God instructed his people to build shelters, or Sukkot as they're called in Hebrew to remind us of the 40 years of journeying in the desert. A week, uh, this article suggests, a week spent in flimsy shelters reminds us of the temporary nature of this life and points to our eternal home in the world to come. Sukkot celebrates God tabernacling there in the tabernacle, the, the tent among the children of Israel during their 40 years in the wilderness, as his presence led them as a cloud of smoke by day and as a pillar of fire by night. The wheat harvest and the grape harvest are both gathered before Sukkot. Jesus speaks of good crops of wheat being like fruitful believers, and also the Bible warns us of grapes trodden down in God's wrath. Fred Hartman notes that it pictures the millennial reign of Christ. Even the disciples understood this to be so. As Jesus was transfigured before three of them in Matthew 17, they wanted to build three booths, signifying that Jesus was going to tabernacle or dwell with them permanently at that time. This was not the case. This feast will not be fulfilled until Christ returns to the earth. Then with him present on the earth, the feast of tabernacles will be fulfilled and it will be celebrated to remind people of of the earth that God is here in the person of Christ, dwelling with man, God with us. And David Levy asks, well, why will redeemed Gentiles need to celebrate this feast in Jerusalem? And he suggests three reasons. First, the Lord commands them to do so. Second, there will be a joyful time of worship and praise to the Lord for the fruitful harvest he provides. And third, it will also be a time when the world recognizes and worships uh, Jehovah or God as king of the earth. In celebrating this festival, the nations will express their submission to Jehovah, the God of Israel, as the only true God of the universe found an interesting article on this from the Jerusalem Post in a small foretaste of what will come in that time. The Jerusalem Post notes, Today the Feast of Tabernacles celebrations in Jerusalem has become a magnet for tens of thousands of evangelical friends of Zion from every continent. These pilgrims travel great distances to express their love for and solidarity with the Jewish people. During their visit to the Holy Land, these devoted Christians come to pray for peace in Jerusalem and extend their blessings to the state and the people of Israel. It's a truly beautiful sight to see so many people from China, Germany, Russia, South Africa, Austria, Brazil, the United States and other countries gathering in unity and happiness. You see, tabernacles is a joyous celebration in Jewish tradition, and it will be so when we see the ultimate fulfillment of Jesus dwelling with us. But, now we come to a negative. Okay? No worship, no rank. Verse 17 says, and it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. Nations existing during the kingdom age will be required to send representatives to Jerusalem to worship the Lord at the Feast of Tabernacles. But those nations that fail to do so will pay dearly for their disobedience. This requirement will be enforced by the threat of the judgment of a lack of rain which would cripple their harvest. There apparently is rebellion and punishment even during Messiah's reign. Failure to worship the king will result in the king becoming the judge. As John MacArthur notes, drought is a dreaded punishment punishment since it deprives the people of life-sustaining water. Lack of rain will bring hardship, and the entire world will know that that country disobeyed the Lord. When the Israelites refused to obey God's commandments, He punished them by withholding rain. You go back through the Old Testament, particularly Deuteronomy, uh, tell, tells that that is the case. Now, this millennial period, uh, many commentators of uh, particularly amillennial or post-millennial, uh, see this as being the heavenly state. But it cannot be. Uh, in Revelation nineteen fifteen, 15, uh, we read, From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. You see, those of the nations left after the tribulation are still in fleshly bodies. As Bruce Hurt notes, in the millennium, God still allows self-will and in this case they exert willful disobedience. We know from other texts that at the second coming in the institution of the millennial reign, all individuals who are physically alive and regenerated or born again by the Spirit will be allowed into the kingdom. But even though they are born again, like we who are born again, they are still capable of willful sin. In addition, this could possibly, and I suspect it may well refer to the children of those who have entered the kingdom, for they will not necessarily be born again. They'll be raised in a culture which is righteous, and they won't necessarily openly rebel at this point. If they don't come to the Lord, there is a final rebellion where Satan stirs things up. But they comply on the outside, but they may become somewhat willful, somewhat careless, uh, somewhat indifferent, you know, the attitude of, of folk today, I don't need to go to church. And it's not church that makes us righteous, going to church that makes us righteous. It is the fact of our righteousness, of our, of our, the, 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 the nature of our saving faith that we want to attend with God's people. He's instructed us to do it, and he's gifted us to to bless one another, to build one another up in the faith. And so during this time, there'll be those who uh, will resist and there will be a result for their nations. We know that uh, it is the case by their willingness to gather, Bruce Hurt says, at the end of the thousand years under Satan who leads an unsuccessful rebellion against the holy city. And so we read in verses 18 and 19, and Egypt gets the prime focus of here. Uh, I'll explain that in a minute as best we can. If the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague, that is the rain, lack of rain will be the plague, with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Egypt is specifically singled out should it not send representatives to the Feast of Tabernacles. Egypt in the Bible, Eugene Merrill notes, is frequently a type of the world at large. Here it is not distinguished, therefore, from the nations just mentioned, but appears as a synonym, Egypt speaking for the rest of the nations. Egypt was long uh, Israel's great enemy in in times past. And... uh, So it it pictures a rebellion in part of the nations. Not only Egypt, but all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles will experience the severest repercussions. And the word for punishment here in the English is, in Hebrew, is actually literally sin. Why did they put punishment instead of sin? Well, it's the consequence of their sin. You see, the drought is what will happen. As the the, the nation refuses to go, then the nation will pay the price. It's the aftermath of sin in the sense that it is its punishment. In the covenant context of the passage, it's nothing short of rebellion and repudiation of God's rule, of Jesus' reign and dominion. Now Stephen Cole notes that while this will be literal, it obviously has spiritual ramifications. Those who do not submit their lives to Jesus and know the joy of his salvation will experience dryness and famine in the soul. Think for a moment about why God reveals this to Zacharias hearers at the time that it was written. That's something we need to do whenever we come to a book is understand uh, the timing Some of the history and some of the geography around those things, and what is going on for the people that are hearing the message. Yes, we still, the message is still relevant for us today, but this was written around 520 BC, over 500 years before the Lord comes, the first time. The message of Zechariah is that God remembers his covenant. And will eventually fulfill all the promises. It was to encourage them. It's a message of hope for the post exilic community. But they've just come out of exile. They're, they're under the opposition and they're discouraged, and the uh, the rebuilding of the walls has gone on under. Yeah, uh, um, uh, I've got the words gone. Um, and. and they're about to rebuild the temple, but for 16 years they've, got, they've hardly got anywhere with the building of the temple. Besides which some of the old folks that knew the old temple, the first temple, are saying, hey, this is nothing. This, this, this is puny. This is not great. And so they're, they're really discouraged. But he gives them a picture through the whole of history, a panorama of history, and gives them the picture of the time when the fulfilment of the promises will come about, when when Messiah comes and reigns from Jerusalem. And it is a message of hope to every believer of every age that God is a covenant-keeping God. We don't pay enough attention to the concept of covenants today. But you take a mortgage with your house, you're taking a covenant with the bank. And the bank promises to give you a certain amount and you promise to pay back on time. And if you don't, what happens with the covenant? (laughs) They have a legal right against you. And they can take back. Well, God laid down for the people of Israel a covenant That was a one-sided covenant. So often people look at the, the people of Israel and say, well, they broke the covenant. Yeah, they broke their obligations in the covenant, but the covenant was sealed by God alone. Abraham was asleep while the covenant was sealed. And so it's an unconditional covenant. God will fulfill his promises. And, and so he's going to come and he's going to, to do all that he has said in the Old Testament. And these verses are an important reminder that the Messiah will one day rule over all. They also illustrate how important holiness is to the Lord. You know, in Psalm 96... Verse 9, and reading from the NIV, it says, Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. And when you do that, what's the reaction for us? It says, Tremble before him all the earth. You see, if we understand how holy God is, our complacency over sin, our indifference to the commands of God, Will melt away as we tremble before the fact that He is indeed so holy. He is righteous and pure. It talks about the splendor of His holiness. And Stephen Cole notes that Zachariah's bottom line is this: if Christ is returning as king to defeat his enemies and to establish his righteous reign over all the earth, then we must walk in holiness. Before him, as John puts it in 1 John 3:3, 3, 3. and everyone who has this hope, what hope is it? It's the hope of his second coming, there's the hope that his covenants will be fulfilled. Who has this hope fixed on him, that is on Jesus, purifies himself just as he is pure. Peter, as Peter contemplated the day of the Lord, he concluded in 2 Peter 3:11 and 12. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord God because of which the heavens in the will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. He's looking forward not only to the second coming but ultimately to the new heaven and the new earth. And Stephen Cole asks us this question, it's pertinent. Do you long for his coming like a child longs for his birthday or for Christmas or (laughs) any of those events that are major in our lives? Are you longing for Jesus to come? You know, yesterday, uh, Scott mentioned it during the communion, but yesterday we saw how quickly things can change in this world. One minute Russian troops are advancing on Russian troops to go to Moscow. Today we learn (laughs) it's all over. Well, all but the shouting is over. (laughs) The consequences will still go forward for some time to come our world is going to change very quickly and it is changing the sign of its coming is the fact that things are speeding up in Matthew 25 Jesus talks about that there'll be a uh, people will be going to and fro all over the earth Do you know that for until 200 years ago everyone traveled the same way by wind and sail and boats and then steam came along and things sped up a little and uh, tr- speed, uh, steam trains and s- steam ships, and then the motor car and then the air- and the aeroplane. And we think nothing of flying around the world today, and it says that and knowledge will increase. <laughs> How much are you hearing about AI today? go back five years, eight years, six six or five or six years, you heard a little snippet of something out there in the distance today. There are thousands of AI apps that you can do things that you you couldn't easily do before. We're in these last days, folks. We are preparing for the time when the Lord is going to take the, the church out Because the church will not be present in the great tribulation, not because we don't want to suffer. Suffering has been part of church history. Those who come to faith in in the persecuted lands are, are paying that price now. But he is going to take his righteousness and remove it from the earth for that time. And then represented it through the Jewish people, through their suffering. And these things are going to take place. In 2 Corinthians 7, 1, it says, Therefore, having these promises, that is the covenant promises, Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Remember, fear is reverence. It's not just a a, a negative fear of a harsh God. It is respecting his holiness. But it comes with an invitation. At the close of the book of Revelation, we read in 22:17, 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. And the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. And it concludes in verse 20 with, he who testifies these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. But it raises the question Are you worshipping Him? And looking forward to the day that we come back with Him and the nations will come up to Jerusalem to worship and to share the joyous feast of tabernacles of God? Tabernacling among men, do you really worship? Or have you allowed worship to become a subset of what songs you like? Or (laughs) is your heart lifted into his holiness, declaring his worthship, that he is worthy and he alone is worthy? Is your allegiance to him? Above all things upon this earth, but well, that's what it means to truly worship. It is a work of having been touched by His holiness, where we're being cleansed from the inside out to become pure and holy and righteous like He is. And the Scripture tells us the day's approaching fast, and we ought to get ready. We ought to prepare ourselves truly. worship putting off the things of the flesh putting off the attitudes of selfishness putting on humility and grace and mercy but allowing Jesus through his Holy Spirit to produce his holiness in us let's bow our heads in a word of prayer Father, these things are uh, just so big and many in the church have said it's all too hard and uh, I'll let it pan out and, but it's kind of like an ostrich putting his head in the sand as, as a threat approaches. Father, we just pray that you would help us to get our eyes on the fact that all things do not go as they always have, that things will change very quickly. And In fact, of his second coming, Paul says it's in the twinkling of an eye we will be changed. And so, Father, we, we, we really just pray that we would be ready indeed to worship you, for that is our eternal destiny if we are in the Lord Jesus. And we pray that it would be genuine worship, not the false worship that Jesus said of the religious leaders of his day because their heart wasn't in it. Oh, Father, you know our hearts. We pray for your Spirit's work to do his cleansing and transforming work in those very same hearts that we would indeed be looking forward with great